Welcome to the IPX True North Podcast, where we connect people, processes, and tools. Welcome back to the future of the industrial ecosystem podcast series we've been doing. I'm joined by Martine and Martin. For those of you that have been following us during this discussion, it's been it's just been a great time. Very animated. Have a lot of respect for these two individuals. For our new listeners, I'd like to welcome back formerly Martine and Martin. And why don't we just do a little quick reset and do a little introduction. Martine and Martin, if you two could just kind of give a little bit of background of who you are, what you do in your professional life and things that you're passionate about. And also just a little understanding of why these things are important to you, why you are CM2 professional Martine, and then Martin, why you are currently the only CM2 certified doctorate in the world and why these things are important. So we'll get to the introductions. I'm Joe Anderson. I'm the president of IPX and joining me today are Martine and Martin, and I'm going to let them do a full introduction of themselves. So we'll start with Martine. Please go ahead, my friend. Yeah, so I'm Martijn Dullard. I work at ASML as business architect uh, configuration management, but my journey into configuration management already started way earlier. Basically, already during my uh, my studies, doing even a thesis around product lifecycle management and how data has to be managed uh, across companies when you're working together. And uh, later on, even at Philips, uh, where we actually started to get into uh, CM2, where Ray Wozni uh, trained us. And then slowly really getting to understand what it is really about. That takes a little bit of time. and But it helped already that I already had a lot of background in the domain, so to say. And then yeah, I continued this at ASML because I think ASML has a, has a very strong sense of importance when it comes to configuration management. Basically, I'm a colleague of Martijn because I'm also one of the architects at ASML. My journey started when basically when I started my career in the 90s somewhere, started in the defense industry. So for my first job onwards, station management was part of the work because they are very visible. I still remember staying late all night to get the build of the software completely right with all the configuration management information into it. Then stepped out and then came to ASML. And before I knew it, I was rolling back into configuration management. It's like something that once, once it bites you, it basically will, be, it will run after you and get you. And then I think 2006, by coincidence, I, I met Ken Black. On, I think it was on a conference in Germany somewhere, I think at Airbus. And he spoke and I still remember that I was like, this can't be true. He was talking, I think about creating user, only two signatures on a document. And I was like, no way, that, that doesn't work. So I got a bit intrigued and then basically went to training. And then there was Ken Black again. And basically he was my mentor and we went through all the trainings. I think from that moment onwards, I was already confident about the fact that I wanted to be, I want to spread the word from the CM2 model. And I don't think I really understood everything then yet. I think same as Martijn. Yes, but when you start with it, you had a lot of information, a lot of new insights, but really understanding the value. And I still remember the baseline in the beginning. I was like, yeah, okay. And, and about the business process hierarchy also was not really into it. And then. When years came on, and basically these two gentlemen behind me became came behind me because I became that nagging guy. Those really fundamental things from the CM2 model start really digging into me, and then basically that's what, yeah, what my daily job now is to make sure that from our company can take all the value out of these assets and can translate them into basically become a company that performs better. Thank you. 
And uh, as I've said previously, in one of our episodes, I've had the pleasure of, of knowing Marta and Martin, I think going on almost a decade, if not more, through our various roles throughout the industry. Today, what I really want to talk about, for those of you that are just listening, we, we have a video production on our YouTube channel as well, where you could watch this. And if you can't currently see the image that Martin was talking about, or he referenced uh, behind him, it's a self-portrait of Martin and myself. I'm obviously the gentleman with the mustache. I've started dyeing my hair. I'm no longer as white haired, but if you're interested in seeing what Martine and myself look like about five years ago, there's a picture that Martin keeps in his bedroom. Currently, you can see it on our YouTube channel and this podcast, but all jokes aside, we've had some great discussions over the past few episodes. And today I woke up to be completely transparent. I have not had enough coffee yet. I know it's afternoon for Martine and Martin. For our listeners, you're going to get a coffee uh, needing Joe Anderson today. So a little feisty on some of the things we're going to talk about. For those of you that are listening, these are probably passions of you as well. So I'm not going to go into a deep explanation of PLM and ERP and MES and data integrity. I'm going to just assume for the most part, we have some base understanding. But as you're all probably familiar, the narrative over the past, honestly, 15 years going on 20 years unfortunately, has been all things PLM across industry, regardless of sector. And uh, I spent a great deal of time every evening and every afternoon researching the latest trends, topics, follow various uh, social media and blogging analysts across the globe. And we're still talking about PLM. And most of them are talking about PLM from a systems perspective and to be, be myself and to be non-tactful, it's just boring. And quite honestly, it's disappointing and frustrating in my shoes now and my hat. I have spent, just for reference perspective, so those of you that don't know me, I spent 15 years deploying common systems and processes across the globe. Over 200 global sites I personally visited and got those entities into a common process and a common system, utilizing a lot of the CM2 blueprint. So I do have a little bit of knowledge on what I'm talking about. I'm not all hot air. I've got a lot of it, as Martin and Martin know. But for this series, I want to really dig into the things that are aggravating me. And one of them is this constant marketing buzzword that PLM is now going to fix everything wrong with the company. And we've been hearing that for, like I said, 20 years. And I woke up this morning from very little sleep and quite annoyed with the first article that, that I read, which was now PLM is going to save all these companies. And I think the three of us know that's just not true. PLM's product lifecycle management is much more than just a tool. It's a systems of systems. It's processes of processes. It's interoperability. It's interchangeability. But what I really want to focus on today, where I think a lot of organizations are just completely missing the mark. It's data integrity and talk about data ownership, data validation, data interoperability. And also I want to tie in, and this is where one co most companies are completely missing an opportunity, which is knowledge management and treating knowledge as data and tying that into the business process hierarchy, the administrative hierarchy, and then being able to associate that with your product lifecycle. So from your perspective, again, like usual, I kicked this thing off with a long-winded sermon on things that are important to me. From your perspective, when it comes to data integrity, we're in 2022, heading, headed into 2023, we're talking about 
artificial intelligence now, machine learning, autonomous machines in the field from manufacturing support to in the field. We've got embedded software everywhere with live updates. When it comes to data integrity, from your perspective, from your seat, what do you think, each of you, are the top five things organizations should really be focused on when it comes to data integrity and process integrity. And Martin, Martin, just go ahead and kick it off. We'll interrupt each other like we always do. We don't have to be formal. But what are your top five things that all organizations, regardless of sector, regardless of what we what they build, produce, manufacture, service, support, what are the top five things that they really should be investing in? Thank you, Father Joseph, for that <laughs> nice sermon. <laughs> no, so my th first thing that came to mind is, so you have to think about your processes. Every business has processes. Some are very similar to other businesses. Some are the processes that make you unique. Processes will have inputs and outputs, and a big part of those inputs and outputs are data. Yeah. And if you don't have your processes right, the data won't be right. So I think number one it will be processes. And maybe number two, three, and four as well. Four and five. I would say exactly <laughs> the same. So let's dive into that one a little bit more. Open that up. What When you say processes, what do you mean? Are you talking just design processes? Are you no. talking just manufacturing? No. Everything. All of Everything. It. Basically, your company. Yes. For me, sometimes I said, I only see two kind of people in the company. The people that make, that make data sets and the people that execute them. And then... That execute everybody in the company executes data sets, executes information because processes are information and you're just executing them. So everybody is every day is executing information, which for me is executing processes. Processes are for me information. It just describes what you need to do, and everything you do is basically a process. Whether you described it or not, or whether you've written it out, or whether you're managing it, I don't care. Everything you do is a process, how formal or informal it is. And I think where the struggle starts is the more informal it becomes, it's not a problem if you're stable. If you're not changing as a company, then it's not a big deal. Everybody knows Joe Anderson is working here at IPX for 15 years. He knows how everything works. He knows who to call, etc. Then it's not a problem. Problem starts when you start changing. And guess what? Not changing basically means no business. Business is gone. So you're constantly in a world of changing. change, And changing is not changing your product because even changing your product, which everybody understands, is also changing the behavior, behavior of your staff, training staff, having different rooms, a different setup. Look at COVID. Perfect example. Going from always in the room into teams meetings with 100 people or something like that. So you're constantly changing. And if you don't, if you're not able to manage that, yeah, you will be bleeding money. Absolutely. And that's a really great point. I had a discussion with a couple of CEOs last week. We always hear we're different. That won't work for us because our company, our organization is different. We build such and such widgets and we're just different. That, that What you're saying sounds great, but it'll never work here. And I'm sure you two have heard that. And the reality is, I think they're saying that because they're afraid of the unknown or they think it's going to cause, it's going to slow them down. They already have so many issues going on. But the one point you made that's really important, and it's what I told them is, listen, you're all the same. I don't care what industry you're in. I don't care what product you make. You're all the same. You're in the business of change. Yep. 
if you can't manage change and evolution of your processes, if you can't manage product change, if you can't manage process change efficiently and effectively, you're not going to sustain and you're definitely not going to be scalable. And eventually you're going to have an issue where your door's shut, whether it is you're burning too much money, you have a quality escape, you're losing resources through attrition because the work-life harmony is out of whack, but you're in a bit, we're in a business of change. We all are. We're in a business of evolution. And that's a great point. How do you see, what do you feel is the missing? We've been talking about these things for a long time, right? There's a lot of individuals, very intelligent individuals been talking about these things. Why aren't organizations taking the, int- the time to invest in these core elements. Why do you feel, what's the missing link? You'll spend 30 million a year on a new system or system licenses that they're using 20% of those licenses, but they won't spend or invest in, in fixing these or improving these issues. Why do you think that is? It's harder. I think when it comes to changing processes, it's not necessarily about changing the processes. It's about changing behavior of people and the way they work and the way they interact. And I think changing a process is relatively easy. I just, you write down what you want to change and you have a new process. But it doesn't work like that in practice because people need to understand what the change is about. They need to embrace it and they need to start following it and adhering to that that new way of working. And that's when it becomes difficult. And I think that's why I think scares a lot of folks into focusing on that area because it's a little bit intangible because what is it that will help you bring people on board? And that's not always the same for everybody. So even if you have a group of hundred people that you have to bring on board, you might have to do it in four different ways because you have all kinds of different types of people that are, that you have to communicate differently with. So that makes it really hard. Whereas if you have a piece of software and you configure it, it's very tangible. You can show something. It's like you can pick up a phone or a computer or a mouse. It's almost that tangible. And I think that is the big difference, why it is so hard. I think yeah, that's a very important aspect. And I think our answer has always been do configuration management, do impact assessment. Because part of the fact that it's so even changing people is something you need to understand and you have to have the, the, the people there and the technology and et cetera. And then from a CM point, we always said, yeah, make sure that you can do an impact assessment because then you know you need to have four different sets of people that need to be trained, that need to create trainings, etc. I think that for me, there are two aspects. First is show me companies that have great success in changing their processes. I think 99% of the CEOs you will talk with will tell you it was hell on earth, was the worst project ever. It was always... it's over budget, it takes too long, everybody's complaining, and etc. Point one. So basically, if you learn from the past, and basically it's going to be difficult. The other thing is, is if then CM comes in and we're talking about, yeah, one of the things is start managing your processes and do change process, then the other history aspect kicks in. The change process is always, doesn't make it better. So you have two of those things. So from a history perspective, I think the answer is exactly where I said, where it was. Yeah, what Martijn also says, you need to understand that there's a, it's difficult. Managing processes and managing change for processes is difficult. It's not always tangible, but it is doable, especially if you do impact assessment. But to do that, that basically means you have to do something that most companies are also 
scared of. Yeah, but it, I also think the same I, process. Yeah, I also think humans find change hard in a sense because they rather stick to what they know. But I think we should also accept that it is okay for employees to feel uncomfortable in a in a change process during the change in a transformation, and not accepting every nitty-gritty nagging of everybody, but sometimes you need to have leadership saying, we're going to move forward. You're going to go do this on starting Monday. We turn on the switch. We're going to use it. We're going to do the process. We're going to do it right. And everybody's going to do it. And if you don't want to, you can find the door over there. Three months later, everybody doesn't know any better anymore, and we can move forward. It's yeah, also a little bit, sometimes you need a nudge to get you moving. And in, instead of staying in, in, in a very negative space, because you feel uncomfortable about the change, but sometimes you need a push from leadership to say, okay, let's just do it and let's get over it. Yeah, but I agree with you. So it's also something I recognize. But I think part of it is because most of the time when we are standing there and yes, we're going to change, people are objecting, eh, are rejecting, are pushing back. Everybody needs to change except me, of course. So what they're going to look for is every little thing they can use to basically say, this is not correct. This is not complete. I'm not there. So basically not be able to do proper impact analysis, going back to your business process hierarchy, because we're not able to do that. We basically also feed that animal that doesn't want to change because he's going to look at that page. You have that nice page. You're going to start with a new process. CEO is there. The guy clicks on one of the links and ends on a dead page, or he's going to read the process description and it's like, don't understand. That doesn't help. So what I'm telling is not going to take away all of this. Yeah, how do you call it? This inner end push from people not to change, but at least it's going to make it more difficult to push through like you exactly say, because I think, Martin, you're absolutely right. Sometimes you need to have leadership that says, we're going right now. I don't care where you want to go. We are going. That don't give them any any small thing that they can cling on to basically say, yeah, that makes it even more harder and that's where most of the things fail so i have one example from one of my first assignments ever in my career was i was still working as a consultant doing implementations of vlm systems and and processes and giving training and such and i was at a, a company that sells beer and they had also some beer tender products for home but also for bars etc and they were basically going to from a basically an excel based way of working to a more plm system oriented way of working to structure it more to have change control better in, in, because yeah, they were growing a lot in the, in that domain and i remember very vividly that during the training session because these people were only used to managing everything in Excel. So that worked fine for them, but there were limitations to what they could achieve. So on one side, everybody understood they had to change, but nobody really liked leaving Excel. And I really remember that training very vividly because that training day, the entire day, the CFO of that company sat in. Phone off, no computer, constantly engaged with uh, during the training. After lunch, he asked, can I speak to the crowd for 15 minutes? Of course, you could speak. And basically, and he said it in a lot more pleasant words, but he literally basically said, it's important. It might not be the best solution. We will fix it where we can. But I need you guys to start using this on Monday. And if you don't, you there's the door. On Monday, we were successfully reporting that everybody put in their data and were, was using the system from then onward. So it's, I think it's so... 
for me, that was one of the most successful deployments ever because it was almost so smooth. There were hardly any, of course, there were hiccups, but it was like we could fix everything they came up with because there was a sense of urgency as well. And also from leadership, there was a clear engagement that we needed to get things done. And in later engagements, I've always noticed that, yes, leadership was involved, but it was not really involved. They were not really committed and engaged to a level that they were, were basically putting their head on the chop block. Good thing, yeah. So if we're talking about products, we all want to work on a new product. Now, if we want to work on doing things differently, then suddenly we need the CEO and I, it, or the CFO that basically pushes people. I think, because I, if you would have said this to me yesterday and we had a discussion, I would say, yes, of course, and I need leadership. And, said, and I'm now listening to you and I'm like, this is idiotic. Why, why do we suddenly need, if it's all about processes, then suddenly we need somebody with a sledgehammer. Because processes is about the people themselves. Yeah. The product isn't. And that's where, that's what the, the difference is. And you're right. And you're both right. And I want to trace back and then I'm going to preach a little bit. I'm, I do want my um, father. <laughs> it's about to happen, ladies and gentlemen. Hallelujah. Uh, I'm a little fired up. I've had some coffee in my system now. Why we've had this discussion. I want to go back to what Martin said earlier. And I believe it was Martine. You both shared some examples where why people don't want to do this. And they say it's because it's hard. And from my perspective, to be quite honest with you, it's not. It's not difficult. It's not hard if you work with the right people that have actually done it before. The difficult part and where organizations struggle is they try to do it themselves and they're not good at it. That's not why you hired the majority of your individuals. You hired them for engineering expertise, manufacturing expertise, finance expertise, human resources. There's very few people in the world or very few people in the world that actually are able to go in and do the true organizational change management, to do the true process change management, the evolution, to ensure that your company is now ready for the Industry 4.0 or the Industry X or the Digital X roadmap, right? And so I don't think it's difficult. I think they just try to do it all themselves or they work with consulting firms or solution providers that have no experience, so my number one thing, going back to the top five for data integrity, process integrity, organizational change management for CEOs, CFOs, individuals to listen to, pass this message on. If you're going to work with an outside entity or if you're going to work in-house, you need to look at that resource and go, where have you done this before? Do you have any scars? What's your experience? And if they say nowhere, what do you mean by scars? And my experience is I researched this in university or at college, then guess what? They have no real world experience on doing the things that are going to, you're going to struggle with. And that's the frustration from my side. If you're actually going to go through this type of an effort and an effort that can make your company better, Ensure your company is around for the next 12 months to 10 years because I said 12 months because we've now over the last three years gone through the pandemic, COVID still coming out of it, high inflation across the globe. And quite honestly, December of 2022, we're looking at a pending recession. So all these organizations, if you don't get your act together 
and actually invest in becoming more solid on the process side, on the OCM side, on the data integrity side, you're in trouble. And I'm tired of the excuse, this is difficult, it's hard, it's not. But you got to work with the people that have actually done it and actually have the scars and have the methodology to do it and guide you. And then going back to Martin and Martine's point about accountability from leadership or mid-level or bottom down, we as individuals, stop making excuses. Stop being lazy. Let's start doing things right. Let's ensure we have robust processes. Let's ensure we have robust data integrity. And the only way we get there is if we value those things just as much as we do new product introduction and new innovation at our company. Because I'll tell you right now, you start saying, we've got this new idea, this new innovation. And if it could, and if we could do this, we could do that to this product, money gets thrown at it. It's harder than hell to get a freaking cup of coffee and a Snickers bar to do process transformation and workforce development for a, a Fortune 500, a Fortune 5 company. It's mind blowing. And here's my sermon. You think I'd already started. Now I'm going to get real before <laughs> I bring it back to Martin Martine. Sorry for everyone. Ford, just three weeks ago, roughly around three weeks ago, we check my date. Sorry if I'm wrong. Did a recall on all Ford Broncos. Right around 700,000 Ford Broncos. A stop driving. Park your Ford Bronco. Stop driving it because we have a product defect that could cause a fire. That could cause your Ford to burn. And I'm sorry. I love Ford. I have a 20-year-old Ford Ranger. I'm not knocking on Ford. This is just a real-world example of where organizations need to get their act together because it's 2022 and we need to stop this. It's maddening. Let's just roughly just throw a dollar amount out there. Let's say it costs Ford, I don't know, $300 per vehicle that they just recalled to assess and or fix the issue because maybe not all those vehicles need to be fixed. And we could have another discussion on why that is. Yeah. So let's just say roughly $300 for 700,000 vehicles. Do the math. I don't have to tell you. That's quite a bit of money. And yet we want to invest a million dollars a year on OCM, on process excellence, on training, true workforce needed training for the core of your company, which is managing change and ensuring data is solid and it's valid. Those are the things that frustrate me. We'll spend a ton of money recovering and on warranty because we're shipping products out the door. But if we would just set a little bit aside, a little bit aside, let's say a million a year, maybe two million a year for large companies on functional training, process evolution, make sure your processes move up with your company. They evolve with your company, with your product, with your systems, spend that amount of money. Guess what? It's going to take a decade for you to even get to that 21 million, you just spend on a recall for one product. And we do that across the board in industry. And it's so frustrating for me. And I'm going to continue to talk about it because every week there's a recall for something that shouldn't have happened. I get sometimes things fail in the field, right? Just a material, something just doesn't work in an environment. And it's but those should be small. I'm seeing large recalls on issues, quite honestly, that are related to 
poor processes, lack of data validation, lack of data integrity. And that's where it frustrates me. And so I'm getting right back to where we were at. And Martin with his example, which is we have to have executives that are going to be advocates and champions. But as individuals, I think we also need to stop being complacent. And I've been there, right? I have a lot of scars. You also get frustrated because you do have executives that don't support process transformation, data, true data integrity, true data validation, functional training, functional development. So I'm off my soapbox there. You guys really push some buttons for me, but these things are important. And I think I, I, you... I, I, sorry, sorry, Joe, no, to please. interrupt your sermon, but please. Uh, I do want to add something here because, so what you mentioned about the recall, eh, so typically the cost of recalls is already calculated as part of the accrual rates or budgeting of the car. Right? It's something they already, it's not a, a cost. Of course, it's a cost. It's like we already expect we're going to spend it, right? So <laughs> it's like budgeted. But I think what your point is, and I want to tie it back to that accrual rate because that's where the link is. Accrual rates have remained stable, if I if I remember correctly, for a very long time already. It's, it has been stabilized, more or less. But what you want, of course, as a company to have a lower accrual rate because that's basically saving you a lot of money. You don't have to spend. And if you spend just a portion of what you think you can spend on all that recalls and those kind of things, improving your processes, ensuring that people are motivated to change, also leadership skills, et cetera, I think you can start saving off or lowering at least a part of that accrual rates that we have today. And I think that is something very worth investigating for especially car manufacturers, because I think for them, yeah, especially cars nowadays, especially electric vehicles, they are on average a tad more expensive than, than the combustion engine cars. So that also means that if, if the accrual rate is stable, that those cars have a higher, or at least from a pure hard cash perspective, a bigger number that they have to put to the side, so to say. Right. So I think there's a lot of value there that you can start yeah, pulling in, so to say. Yeah, but that's yeah. a mindset change. Eh? So it all starts with that mindset change again. Uh, yeah, but so, I mean, from uh, I'm not the CEO of a company that is, is, is producing cars, but if I would be a CEO, I would be thinking, well, I can spend, save, put aside basically a big bucket of money because we just are shitty at our processes, or I can just take a small bit out of that bucket, assuming that if I do these things right, I don't have to put it in that bucket anymore. And then for every car I sell after that, I can lower the accrual rate. So I just, as a executive, at a, as a company, Martin, are you saying that the high prices in our products that we've seen over the last 10 years aren't just because of inflation? It's a joke. No one can see my face. Yeah. It, we are placing, from an organizational standpoint, our poor quality and our costs and resource intervention, all those expenditures onto our consumers. I believe that's what you're alluding to, correct, Martin? Yeah, so basically Mar I'm saying quality costs nothing. You only have cost of non-quality because you intend to produce a car that is conforming to its requirements. If it doesn't, you have to set aside money to fix the issues. So you, it's only always about cost of non-quality, it's not the cost of quality. That is a point that we are going to reference with this podcast. It's the cost of poor quality or not having quality. That's where it's at. Yeah, and then link it back to the data. It's there exactly the same. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And the the non-quality data, because that's what you also see. Yeah? If you look at 
even if you don't want to look outside your company, but look inside your company, how much human glue do you have to fix for all the data uh, integrity issues you have? Yeah, and then start applying my, ML and AI on the poor data. Then yeah. what kind of sh crap will come out of that? What kind of biased information that will come out of it is going to be useless. Yeah, I think so you also saw that, uh, what was it, that artificial intelligence that basically was trained with white male training sets. So basically it started uh, discriminating based on racial uh, aspects, which is talk about poor data. It's a side effect. And basically that means you have to start kicking in. They stop the servers. Basically, uh, the, I think it was Google uh, in this case, uh, Google Photo that uh, basically had that issue. But there's also a data issue. Your whole data set is not correct. So yeah, throw in more, more people to, to fix it. And depending, of course, If you are in a high margin business, you can do this for a long time and you don't even see it as a problem. And I think then even the next worst thing kicks in, the people that you hire to fix your data basically think that what they are doing is value add and that it basically is part of the regular work. So they even will resist you to start changing it because it never worked like that. So, so it's a kind of a, how do you call it, a vicious circle. Where once you enter the vicious circle of poor data, poor quality, and like you said, oh, we just reserve an X amount of money. So there is no problem. Now, the, to close off this series, I want to go into data ownership a little bit with what you just brought up with the scenario with the AI. So it was the inputs that it received from the algorithm perspective, from the data perspective, were for, from a too small of a sample size. I can't remember if it's just like one person or two people. And so all of the data that was utilized, all the perspective from that ownership group or that creator user group was the sample size was too small. You had the wrong individuals. And that goes back to what I said earlier. You've got to make sure you actually have the right owners, the right creators, the right users. You have to have the right sample size, the right inputs. And that seems trivial. We, If we get it wrong on something as simple as artificial intelligence on, on creating images or structuring responses, which we see what's going with open AI, at least some functionality, new functionality, a new side app, which is quite intriguing. I've been testing that out. But if you don't have the right data ownership, you're going to have issues. And I think that's where you're going too, Martin, is at the end of the day, it also comes back data integrity. It's 100% depending, dependent on ownership, those inputs and those outputs. And from Make you, again. yeah. How do you two see to close this out? And we could talk about Martin. I know you, you've got a new technology you mentioned on the last po podcast called Confederated PLM. The folks can't see us. <laughs> the folks can't see us all right now laughing, but that's just a little inside joke. But at the end of the day, to, to close this series out, and where would you have an individual right now that, that's listening? They get it, they're in the trenches, they have the scars, they're struggling with this, whether it be a CEO, a, a director, a manager, or just somebody, a new hire, and they're working for an organization and they're going, Yes, this is exactly exactly what we're struggling with. And it's something we should put a small little amount of money, just like Martin mentioned, out of our bucket and focus on fixing this. What's their first step? What should they do? How should they get this to be a supported objective, annual objective at their organization? Get some knowledge. Without having knowledge, you have no idea in which direction to start looking for. So seeing that you have a problem is one. 
And it's a bit like if you don't have a map and you're at a place and you're no, first you don't even know you're on the wrong place. Yeah, maybe you can look around and say this is not where I want to be. But then you have no idea how do you get to the other side. So you need some knowledge to first understand what is wrong where I am and how can I find a road to the right place. So for me, it's knowledge. And knowledge is you build it up yourself, trainings, or go to people that have done it before that, that basically have the knowledge. And that, for me, that's where it starts. Because the, how do you convince a CEO, and let's put, get somebody lower in the trenches, and you go to your CEO and you basically, yeah, we need to do something. And then the next question is, what? And if you don't have an answer, then basically it's, yeah, you brought me a problem, but you don't bring me a solution. And I think that works for everybody, low or high in the organization. Bringing a problem is not, a, that, that's not the hard thing, getting the answer. So you have to somewhere get an answer. And whether, so we're IPX True North podcast, of course, I would say get CM2 information or Get people to have that knowledge. Maybe go to the source. If you can, go to the source of that knowledge. But that's where it starts for me because I think that's exactly what I did. Yeah, I think I, I for the most part, agree with uh, with Martin. I think there's, there's one thing that I would add is if you want to be able to sell that you have a problem and that you have a solution potentially, and you might not even have all the details right yet. So one of the steps could be, yeah, we need CM2 training to better understand this and to get some next steps. But I think defining what the problem is and what the roadmap is around that problem to success. Looking, saying, let's cave off some of the budget that we put to the side and start fixing these issues. And then let's see where we can gain some, some improvements. I think having some basic insights already is important, even to sell that you want to get CM2 certified or that you want to get some people, folks in that can help you take some next steps and define a true, a true roadmap, a true change scope for what you're going to do next. And I think it's a combination of both because if you don't understand what the real problem is and at least some ideas of the direction where you want to go, so you still have, even though you don't, don't have a map, you at least have, they have the sun and so you can already navigate where it's north or south. And there is at least some way that you can navigate, right? Even if you don't have a map and you already can say, well, I have to head north and we're on a true north podcast. Okay, then I also have to go get Father Joe in because otherwise I'm still ending south. I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah. And you kind of agree more. And I do know it's a challenge, but it's a challenge that if you actually invest properly, you can start moving quite quickly. And I'll, yeah. I'm never going to change from that. My opinion, my perspective will always be very consistent. Invest 20% of what you invest for new product introduction, new innovation, invest 20% of that minimum on process excellence, on data integrity, on functional workforce training, and you're going to start seeing all of these issues, all the cost expenditures, the extra resources for firefighting, the quality escapes, you're going to see them go away. And you're definitely going to see them reduce. Even better, the 20% that you basically use of your development budget will basically make sure that your product is just as fast. So it's Absolutely. not even your cost. Absolutely. But you will start with the smaller and the simpler things that will already will get you. It's not, yes, it's an investment. It, in the long term, it's an investment. For most companies, there is so much low-hanging fruit, which you can already get 
return on investment on that first 20%, basically, where you have, if I have to cut down 20% of my budget, it's not 20%. Yeah. Yes, you're spending 20% of the original, but you will soon figure out that you basically you didn't need that 80%. You could do with less. So oh. it, it, the story is even better, huh? Yeah, for sure. And that's the one thing we always work with our clients and give them industry case studies. It's for every, let's just say for every million dollars invested with training or with services, you get 10x return from multiple streams within your workforce. But we'll talk about that next time. I'm going to close this out. I want to thank Martin and Martine again. Thank you for taking the time, guys, to do this and talk about these things with me. I think it's very important for our listeners. I, I hope we slowly grow the audience because these are things very few people take time to actually talk about and also for audience members to listen to and figure out how to take these lessons back so you don't get the scars that the three of us have. And that's one thing I want to close on. Again, Martin is the only certified doctorate in the world. And if you have a question, this is someone that is very passionate about these things. When he has time, he'll help you out. And Martine, this is my unbiased opinion, and I'm going to let you tell the audience where they should go. And we haven't done this yet, but I, and I know I mentioned it, but I really want you to tell the audience where your newsletter is and where your blog is. And here's why for the audience. I read a lot of industry articles throughout the week just to gauge where we're at with our education sector and our professional services sector, seeing any trends, seeing anything where an individual just needs some help and maybe we could help with some connections. But Martine has a newsletter and a blog that quite honestly in this field is probably the best of the best. And why, and why do I say that? He, his newsletter and his blogs always properly reference the IP he's utilizing. And that might seem trivial, but if you're in my world and people, and it happens all the time with solution providers, it happens with people borrowing training and training their organization on IP that they don't own, analysts utilizing IP, basically a copy and paste in their blogs. Martine doesn't do that. When he utilizes someone's IP, regardless of who it is, he references it. But what he brings to the table is significant. And Martin does the same thing. This is someone that has the scars. That's done it. That has been through the trials and tribulations of trying to do these initiatives without support, without training, without knowledge. And then he's done it on the flip side with support, with training, and with the knowledge. And what he brings to the table with these blogs, these posts, with his newsletter, also follow Martine on LinkedIn and watch his comments on some of the discussions. He's spot on. And if you want an industry expert, these are two in the field. I put them up against anyone. I would. And if you don't know of Martine's blog and newsletter, you need to check it out because there's a wealth of information there. And he's one of the few bloggers where they're not full of, they actually know what they're talking about because he's been through it. Again, I'm going to go back to my point, service provider, consultant, educator, blogger, analyst, your first question should be, where have you done this? What scars do you have? And if they can't answer you with that, go somewhere else. I'm telling you right now, Martine's blog and his newsletter is something you should be checking out. So I'm going to close on that. Martine, let our audience know where they could go to check out your newsletter and your blog. I know on LinkedIn, but just formally let us know and then we'll close this out. Yeah, so if you go to mdux.net, that's where my blog is, but you will also find a link to the newsletter that is hosted on LinkedIn. 
Thank you. Guys, thanks again. I look forward to the uh, the next episode. As usual, you've made my day. I was a little bit grumpy this morning, but now I'm in a better mood just talking to you too. And I think our audience can relate to that. We wake up and we're going to struggle with the same thing again. But there is a group out here, a large group of visionaries, of thought leaders that can help individuals. And there are companies that can help your organization get better. So with that, thanks everyone for joining us, Martin. Martine, thank you again for taking the time to talk to me and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe and review the show. And for more information on IPX, visit ipxhq.com.